Hey everyone, John Hammontree here. I've got a couple interviews that I am really excited about that will be dropping soon, but unfortunately I had to push those back this week due to scheduling conflicts. So today I'm coming at you with a very special bonus episode. We're chatting with John Archibald and Amy Yerkinen, two of the people behind Reckon Radio Seasons 1 and 2. Season 1 focused on Greek gods, a story about the machine at the University of Alabama which is a look into a secret society that allegedly controls everything from Tuscaloosa and beyond. And then season two focused on Jeff Sessions' rise and fall. It's called Recused, and you can find both of those anywhere you can get your podcasts. But today, we are talking about the projects that John and Amy have in the works. And I am really excited about all of these. And if you haven't already subscribed, please go subscribe to Reckon Radio, and I'll let these guys tell you why. All right, today I am chatting with John Archibald and Amy Yerkinen, who a lot of you will recognize as the hosts of Reckon Radio, Season 1, Greek Gods. Thanks for coming on, guys. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. So it's been a little over a year since we first published Greek Gods. Were you surprised by how strong the reaction's been? I know there's at least one professor who's now teaching it as a course at the University of Alabama. Oh, I'm not surprised in the least. That's the one thing you can count on when you talk about the machine is that reaction will be loud uh, and it often won't end in anything other than loud. And you've obviously been in Alabama longer than I have because I was actually very shocked at the uh, the. I guess the popularity of the podcast, I mean, it did pretty well and um, wasn't sure what to do, you know, how it would do um, our first time out, but it, it did pretty well and got a lot of really good reaction. So I've been trying to tell you all that. this for decades. I mean, decades. And uh, people are like, why are you still talking about what happened in college? Grow up and all that. But it's just such a strange and interesting phenomenon that people can sort of relate to it. And it, it just never ends. Well, and we saw a little uptick in listeners again at the beginning of this year. I think it's one of those things where uh, just kind of like the Esquire article and things like that of old that, you know, each each incoming freshman class who's interested in figuring out what exactly is the machine, what's going on campus, uh, they're going to, to pick it up and listen to it. And hopefully it'll it'll continue to have legs. And you're talking about an Esquire article from how, when was that? The 90s? 1992. Which is, is right? Yeah, I yeah. think it was. It was was either right, right or before, right after the Minda Riley incident. It must have been right after. I think that's why they would have been Writing sending about someone down there. Yeah. And I think it was fresh after one of the, I guess, the last person to beat the machine before Elliot Spillers did. Uh, was there anything that you wish that you had been able to get into that podcast series that didn't make it into the final four episodes? Yeah. Hundreds. Hundreds <laughs> of think, things. Yeah. I, I mean, I, if I could do it all over again, of course, um, I think obviously it would have I would have liked to have dug deeper into some of the administration stuff, uh, which folks have asked about. So, you know, maybe if it's something to revisit, um, we can certainly do that. Although it's not like that's the easiest story to get to the bottom of, I'm sure. But uh, that would be a great place to look yeah. for additional I mean, episodes. The thing about it is, is I mean, there, there are countless, literally countless, well, countless for us, stories of and legends and uh, stories of things that went down that everybody just, you know, quote, knows they're true. And yet when it goes, when it comes time to confirming whether they are true or not, sometimes there's a lot of gray area there where we just can't tell or we just can't tell to the point where it's comfortable to or, you know, given legal constraints and yeah. ethical constraints and decency to yeah. to say those things. And so, you know, if we'd love uh, there's still a lot out there that hopefully someday we can 
get solid or somebody can. And well, and we're speaking in, you know, a few weeks after um, a quick rash of resignations from members of the administration. I mean, we're in we're in rumors and innuendo territory now, and I don't want to directly attribute any of it to the machine. But, you know, you do kind of wonder. Or to me or Amy. <laughs> or, or to you or Amy. But you do kind of, it does kind of raise an eyebrow as to what exactly is going on on campus uh, this year. And certainly as we're going into a uh, into another rabid political season, I think one thing that shocked me um, last year was reading Senator Doug Jones' memoir, about the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, and he, I think, was the first uh, and highest-ranked elected official that I've ever seen admit to being a member of the machine while on, on campus at the University of Alabama. And that was something that I, I wouldn't have thought of at the time, and I guess we, you were working on the podcast well before his his election, and so there was a lot going on. Yes, I, I in fact, had to stop working on the podcast during that election for a little while, obviously, because there was so much news going on and it was sort of all hands on deck. Um, but that wasn't even a connection that I really thought of at the time. I think you mentioned it, but, you know, it was we were so wrapped up in Roy Moore, Doug Jones, that that I think the idea of connecting Doug Jones back to the machine project to Greek gods was not really on my mind. Um, but that, yeah, that's definitely an interesting wrinkle. And, you know, maybe there will come a time when he wants to sit down and talk to us about that. But he may have kind of more urgent uh, matters on his plate right now. Yeah, he's yeah, got his hands full. More urgent than the machine. Are you kidding me? <laughs> the, but, the, you know, that's the thing that makes it so appealing because it crosses all partisan lines. These people are trained in the same melting pot and they ooze out into their own different political environments and they all have that machine machine base and it just to me it's just fascinating and um you know of course to me it's often poisonous as well but um it is certainly interesting yeah and uh you know i think season two of reckon radio also is kind of interesting in this particular political moment because it is about kind of the rise and at least temporary fall of jeff sessions and at the time that we were Recording it, that Amy was working on it. Uh, it kind of seemed like everything was building up towards the Mueller report, and that that might lead to impeachment inquiries. We're recording this the day after impeachment inquiries were announced that have absolutely nothing to do with Jeff Sessions or the Mueller report. And so I think it's still worth going back and listening to just because it's a, a a moment in time and, and a political figure. But uh, what did you learn about Jeff Sessions in that process, Amy? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, well, I think what was interesting to me is uh, one of the most interesting things was learning about kind of his role as when he was the attorney general of Alabama, because obviously there's some parallels there between that role and being the U.S. attorney general. And in that, you know, both positions, you're dealing with a lot of people trying to use politics to sort of influence who you're going to investigate. Um, and at the time, there were uh, a lot of pressures for who he should be looking into and who he shouldn't be looking into. And a lot of that centered around Governor Guy Hunt. Um, and, you know, he wasn't the only person involved in that investigation. But at the time, there were calls from from Republicans around him to sort of lay off that investigation. And, um, you know, to his credit, he and the office kind of pushed forward with it. And there was some, you know, some parallel there between his decision in that case and basically what he did, you know, with recusing himself in the Trump investigation. 
that I think he gets described a lot as a Boy Scout kind of person. And that moment maybe crystallizes that. Although there were also stories from his background that belie that reputation. Um, before he was Alabama's attorney general, he was in Mobile as a, as a U.S. attorney. And there, there's a lot of a lot of belief that he really politically retaliated against people in Mobile who disagreed with him, in particular African American politicians. You know, it, it's not a secret that um, allegations of racism have kind of dogged him throughout his career um, against African Americans, and obviously his position on immigration, um, and that really really kind of explore that and and where the roots of it were in his early career in law enforcement there in Mobile. Um, and I think it's, he's going to be an interesting historical figure, obviously very divisive. Um, people will see him certainly through kind of the lens of what their beliefs are. Um, you know, I think his position on immigration, as hardline as it's been, is it's really hard for Democrats to square that with, you know, what they might think as far as his positions on uh, the Mueller report and recusing himself from that investigation. It's He's in a lot of ways a very straightforward person, but that kind of puts him in a lot of complicated situations sometimes. He is difficult to evaluate at this point, honestly, because, I mean, I think historically, I mean, he's going to, well, he will, he will be held accountable for his immigration Absolutely. stances for, for doing that. But he also will, I think, be seen as the guy who stood um, on principle, whether that's true or not, and and it cost him his job. Well, and, uh, I, think, I think he has very strong uh, law enforcement principles. I think it's really hard to discount, though, his position on immigration. Um, I think a lot of the policies that have come down under the Trump administration obviously came from Sessions and his office. And, and Stephen Miller. And Stephen Miller, another, another, se- another Sessions, Sessions associate. Yeah. And those are going to be viewed quite harshly, I think, in the grand scheme of things. And that's uh, we can not forget that when we're just looking at his role as someone who's stepped back and let a special investigation continue. Well, and in the Mueller report, I mean, a lot of the high drama scenes involved Sessions. Uh, Trump held on to a, a resignation letter for Sessions for, for a long time uh, and kind of held it over his head, if I understand correctly. And then when he learned that uh, Sessions had recused himself from the investigation, I think the uh, the money quote was, oh, fuck, this is the end of my presidency, <laughs> is that is what Trump said. Hey, I'm just quoting the president, uh, according to the Mueller report. But I didn't I, know the Reckon podcast did that. You know, it's, that uh, opens it's up a whole new world to me. It's we'll, news. We'll just have it's to journalism. Put a, a disclaimer at the top, right? <laughs> yeah. Don't Hide your kids. Your... We can't use the president's language. On exactly. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the projects that you all have in the works, because I'm really excited about season three and season four of Reckon Radio. Uh, Amy, you have long been interested in true crime podcasts. I think you've listened to more of them than anybody that I know. And uh, you have a story of your own that you've you've uncovered and are uh, hot on the trail of. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So the story that I've been working on for most of the year, um, it takes place in Etowah County. And like everything always does. Like everything. It also takes place in Coosa County, though. Okay. So it's, um, you know, it's not just an Etowah County case, although all the major players live in Etowah County. Um, 
And basically, this is a crime that happened back in 1995, and the crime occurred in Coosa County. Um, there were three men who were in a hunting cabin who were attacked, robbed, and burned. Um, two of the men passed away, and one of them survived. Um, this crime went unsolved for 14 years, um, and then it took a lot of crazy twists and turns, which took it to uh, the Alabama Attorney General's office and led towards this corruption investigation. And basically, there is a lot of, there is a, a sense among the survivors and the families of the deceased that justice wasn't really served fully in this case, that there's still a lot of loose ends out there. Three men pleaded guilty, um, and one of them is still in prison, one of them has since passed away, and one of them has been released from prison. Um, but they feel like there's more of the story to tell, and as I've dug into it, I've certainly found that a lot of the story has not been told, and I do think that there are people involved who perhaps have never been in investigated to the extent that they probably should have been. And if people are fans of S-Town or Serial or White Lies or any of the other major podcasts, this has everything that you would want from a true crime podcast set in Alabama. You've got Satan worshipers, you've got <laughs> drug addicts, you've got drug runners, you've got wealthy businessmen, you've got... You've got maybe the most eccentric Alabama lawyer who I have ever come across. Yeah. Um, Frank Wayne Bailey. I don't think he would be upset at that description, um, but he gets caught up in the story and he is someone you're not likely to ever hear anyone like him again in your life. I mean, he's a little bit like a John B. character. Sure. But uh, he's, a, he's a very interesting person. Um, and, you know, he's, he's right in the middle of this case. Um, there's a lot of I don't know. It's hard to it's a little bit hard to explain, but there's a, a sense that he may have some of the vic survivors think that, you know, maybe his involvement did muddle the criminal investigation. He doesn't necessarily believe that he still thinks that he was trying to get justice for the survivor. Um, and, you know, I think folks who listen, they'll have to make up their own mind on that. We have a lot of we have a lot of tape with him. We have a lot of surveillance tape, and uh, it's it's interesting stuff. You get to kind of hear behind the scenes, you know, how an investigation happens. Um, and I've read the first five scripts of it, and it is terrific. So everybody should go ahead and resubscribe to Reckon Radio if you haven't uh, listened to it in a while. Catch up on the old shows. John, what is it about Etowah County? You know, it seems like that's that area is very rich for some of the weirdest, uh, most bizarre stories. I mean, it's where the Beach House Sheriff is from. It's where Roy Moore is from. It's where this much of this story takes place. I, I, you know, I don't know if we that should be our next podcast. What's up with Etowah <laughs> County, I guess. But I mean, certainly there's certain, a lot of toxins in the ground and in the water. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, you know, and it's far enough away from you know, the big city to be rural and uh, yet it's still, uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's classic uh, uh, sort of old South where, where uh, people, where it runs itself in a lot of ways. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's often run that in a unusual ways. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe Gadsden, the largest city in Etowah County, as a small town necessarily. It's it's bigger than that, but it has small town feel to it. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of rumors. There's a lot of folks talking to each other and stories floating around, and uh, 
it's an interesting place and everyone kind of knows each other and and you've got these long relationships that build up over generations and i think that that can get complicated um when everyone knows your backstory definitely john you've got two projects i'm really excited about in the works both looking at birmingham history uh let's talk first about your podcast so what is it that you're you're, you're looking at this period of Birmingham that most people don't really know a whole lot about. Can you tell us a little bit about what this yeah, well, is? People, people from Birmingham of a certain age all know the name uh, Benita Carter because it was a uh, the ki- she was a young woman who was killed at a by a police officer uh, in the seventies uh, and it's widely attributed to her death was widely attributed to allowing Richard Arrington to win and become the first black mayor and 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 changed the, the course of history. And all, all that's true, but um, as I started looking into this, I found out there's so much about that. I mean, I grew, I was a junior in high school when this happened, not far from, you know, where I lived, and it, it rocked this whole city. But there was so much I found out as I looked into this that I had, that, that what I had known was all wrong. And um, what happened that day at this convenience store uh, is, was just laid out uh, in, in a lot of court documents and uh, in, in memories of people. And it's it's really just, uh, to me, it's just incredibly fascinating, primarily because this is an incident that occurred 15 years after what we think of as the civil rights movement in Birmingham. Um, and, you know, at that time in 1963, you know, there was so much effort to fight for legal rights, uh, voting rights, not having to drink out of segregated fo- uh, uh, water fountains, those sorts of things. But 15 years later, you know, the city was still, uh, I mean, it had uh, allegedly achieved these rights, yet people in these neighborhoods were still in fear of a police department that was built by Bull Connor. So all that led to to this 1979 time when 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 black people in Birmingham did not have uh, political rights and this was the last straw and it's often overlooked for what it is beyond Birmingham. Uh, and I think it's uh, it, more than anything, I mean, it's an extremely interesting, interesting story because it really did change Birmingham and the series of events that followed changed Birmingham as well. But that moment in time, to me, what is the most attractive about it is it's just an incredibly fascinating story. And what happened and what happened after, uh, it just continued to stun me. Well, and it, there's a lot of cultural resonance today, I think, because this would be an example of an officer-involved shooting that did lead to overwhelming systemic change for a city. You know, uh, I think you look at a lot of the examples now, you know, Sandra Bland, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, and those communities haven't necessarily seen the type of change that I think that Birmingham may have seen in right. 1979. And uh, I mean, it is clearly an, an, sort of an example of Black Lives Matter before Black Lives Matter. And in that case, it was a black life that really did matter to the greater community and make changes. I mean, it was it's remarkable, really. And, you know, you can't really look at it without saying, I mean, it was remarkable how the city of Birmingham dealt with it at the time because they immediately held hearings. They immediately, you know, subpoenaed every witnesses. The seven-year-olds were subpoenaed to come talk before these committees and say exactly what they thought. Uh, and ultimately... Um, the decisions in it were questioned by the community and the current, the mayor at the time, uh, David Van, who was seen as very progressive, did not win re-election uh, because of his uh, failure to do what people wanted him to do in that community. But but it's really remarkable how open 
that investigation was and how much information was made available and diagrams and tapes and and all these things that you know we, we when we see what happens today we almost never are allowed to know exactly what took place in in the there's never a public examination of whether it was the right or wrong call and in this case that's one of the things that's that, that that maybe you'll have to figure out in the by listening to the people in the podcast as well it's a, it, it's not a issue of black and white well, I mean, it was a racial issue, but there's a lot of gray in what happened on that day, and and it kind of makes it easy to understand how, how, how even with all that examination, uh, people couldn't agree on what was right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating. I've looked through some of those documents with you, and and you know, there's a lot of damning material when it comes to the police at the same time there are moments where you certainly can see you know why certain actions were taken i think it's it's that's the way things are often in these cases things are not easy but one of the other parts of of looking at this is looking back over the history of the birmingham police department and and seeing how often and the numbers are going to be staggering to people how often um, white police officers shot black suspects um for uh essentially any reason they wanted to one one of them noted that uh he was a known burglar so they shot him and you know hundreds of times over the course of the decades this happened and and almost all are written off as justifiable and so you can certainly understand how mm-hmm. this community would reach its end i mean reach uh, would it will have had enough and um and that's the context we come into that spot and that's you know in some ways the context where we are now although because of this benita carter i'm convinced that because of the benita carter shooting in addition to changing the city the mayor and everything it it caused the complete reshaping of the police department to one that was a lot less likely to use deadly force than ever before and you've also got uh, one other project that's in the works. Um, we're all very excited to read your uh, first book. Huh. You've got a memoir uh, coming out sometime in the next year or two. What can you tell us? What can you give away about what, you, what you've been exploring in your book? Well, it started because I was born in here in 1963. I hate to start like the jerk, the movie The Jerk. <laughs> um, but um, that's probably too old for you. But um, No, I know The Jerk. <laughs> thank you. Um, I, I was born in, you know, really the precise moment in time Martin Luther King was in jail writing his letter excoriating the white church for inaction on issues of race and that sort of thing. And my dad and his dad and his dad were all preachers in the South and Birmingham, too. They were preachers in Birmingham at the time. So, uh, you know, I finally, when my dad died, I was able to look at every sermon he ever wrote, which I didn't necessarily pay attention to or wasn't alive for. <laughs> And to see, you know, where they stood on those things. And it led me to a sort of a, a look at uh, at whether it's possible to be a, a good person if you remain silent in the face of great wrongs. And uh, that's true with issues of race as, as much as it is with issues of, you know, uh, any discrimination, whether it's LGBTQ or whether, which my dad had to deal with, with, uh, when, you know, as, as he grew up. Uh, older because my, my oldest brother came out as gay in the 70s, which if you're pastor of the First Methodist Church in Decatur, Alabama, could be a, uh, 
in the 70s was a different sort of thing. So, I mean, it's an examination of using of, of, of using the pulpits you're given through the civil rights era and through the gay rights era and through now and what comes next. And and it's a, it's it's scheduled to be published uh, by Knopf uh, probably in next August, although the calendar's still a little bit up in the air. Well, I think we are all excited to see how y'all use your pulpits and what comes next. So if anybody wants to go ahead and get ahead of the curve and, and subscribe to Reckon Radio so you can hear both of these excellent shows that will be coming out in the next few months, uh, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And that does it for this bonus episode. Next week, I'll be back with an interview with Lindsay Gilpin, the founder and editor-in-chief of Southerly.